welcome back for most of you all. Um, and if this is your first time, we're glad you could join us. Welcome to Logos. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, this is our first large group study of the new year. Um, January has a tendency of um, slipping away real quickly. So we're coming towards the end of January, but this is our first time together. Uh, in a minute, I'll, I'll um, uh, pray for us to start um, and, and along with our brother Teddy. Um, but what you can expect tonight is um, uh, the same order of worship that we had last semester, um, where we're going to have a time of reading of the text uh, and then have some sharing uh, from two discipleship groups or representatives from two discipleship groups. And then Pastor Mark will lead us uh, through a time in the Word. Hopefully you all had a chance to meet in your discipleship groups to study the text together. Um, and so uh, Pastor Mark will uh, tie that all up for us. Um, and then we'll have some announcements. And then afterwards, uh, for those of you that are so inclined, we'll stick around and just have a time of icebreakers. Um, and so that's the plan for tonight. Um, I will pray for us. And then I'll ask our brother Teddy to pray afterwards uh, to open our time. Okay, so please bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you uh, that through his life and death and resurrection, uh, that uh, your life, eternal life, adoption into your family, um, entrance into your kingdom is available to us. Uh, we thank you for the gospel of grace, uh, that though we were sinners uh, we were dead in our trespasses uh, through christ uh, through the faith that you've given to us we can have life in him we pray for uh, this evening as we go through the text in first timothy um, and take a closer look uh, at the body of christ the church help us to have hearts that are open uh, to uh, being taught and being um, uh, changed by your word Help us to grow in our appreciation of the church, of the community of believers. Uh, be with Pastor Mark as he teaches through your word. May your spirit uh, embolden him and, and speak through him. We thank you and lift all these things up in your name. Um, so just as far as uh, Zoom etiquette, um, I think you all know uh, the drill by now, but uh, we uh, ask kindly if you're able to to uh, keep your cameras open. Um, you know, even in this virtual environment, it's a small way that we can see each other's faces and stay connected. Um, also, please bear in mind that this session is being recorded. Um, and then one other thing uh, to keep in mind is that uh, the chat function is open uh, and it's um, it's there for us to um, um, communicate as, it's, as is appropriate. So sharing things like links uh, that are related to the announcements that are shared um, and so on. Uh, but we do ask that particularly during the time of teaching of the word of God, uh, that you refrain from using um, the chat unless it's invited by uh, the, the teacher. 
Um, and uh, you know, one one thing to keep in mind um, is the passage in First uh, Corinthians fourteen thirty three, uh, in which uh, Paul is sharing about um, the context of um, uh, the worship service and that God is uh, not a God of confusion but of peace. And so, uh, you know, particularly when the word is being preached, we want to just um, uh, be paying close attention and being reverent to the word of God. So, just please. Um, uh, be mindful of that. Uh, I'll go ahead and read the text for us tonight. Uh, and then afterwards, I'll ask a couple of folks that um, uh, have been volunteered to share. So if you can turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. Uh, and the passage reads, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world taken up in glory. Um, so uh, we have two groups sharing tonight um, from, uh, from the brothers group. Um, uh, Gabe from Teddy's group will, will share one highlight um, and, and uh, potentially one prayer request. And then afterwards, Kim Leung from Udi's group. Um, so I will hand it off to Gabe. Hi, everyone. Can everyone hear me right now? Yep. You're Perfect. I'll, I'll get started. Clear. Okay. For, for, first of all, happy news, everyone. So, you know, happy news, everyone. Just in case that you don't know me, who's, who's just first came for, come for the first time, my name is Gabriel. And by God's grace, I was able to be part of a book club during the holidays, reading the night Mark's book on Disciples by Mark Dever and a biography of Amy Carmichael. Very encouraging read. One thing that I learned from the book club is the emphasis of discipling others. Discipling is helping others follow Jesus and doing other spiritual good. If I were to summarize about discipling, discipling is all about initiating a relationship in which you teach, correct, model, and love. This takes great humility. And this reminds me of 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, based off of ESV version. So it says here that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I also learned that discipling is a two-sided relationship, meaning the student needs to know he that she needs help and is willing to receive it. That student must be teachable. Discipling is not about only sharing strength, it's also sharing about weaknesses as well too. Discipling in the gospel means leads the way in confessing weakness or sin. In order to follow Christ, we need to acknowledge our sin and repent. If we want to be disciples, if God's willing, we need to be disciples first. So, so through Amy Carmichael's book, she, she defines the definition of joy as a missionary in Donover. I'm not sure I pronounced it correctly. Uh, so she was in Donover. So one interesting observation, when she was educating the lower class girls, she said education was not in order to bring a rise of social standing or material prosperity. It is a preparation to serve Christ and others. Amy really wanted to see the girls to see Christianity as a source of a truly happy life. When she describes joy, her definition is, is joy is not gush, joy is not joyness, 
Joy is a perfect acquaintance in God's will. As we discussed it in our group, we were encouraged by Amy about how she responded at the funeral in the biblical perspective. She believed that Christian death was never to be lamented though, knowing that there's joy in Christ alone. Would we ever have the same perspective as Amy Carmichael, especially when you think about death? So, so during this time, I was very encouraged and convicted in book club during the holidays. My prayer request is that for myself is that to have a discipling mindset towards my brothers and sisters in Christ and LBCSJ, being intentional and a good listener, asking questions like, how are you doing? How's your time in the word? How's your relationship with others? How can I be praying for you? And then the most important command is that to obey um, John 13, 34 by knowing, loving, serving Christ and one another with joy like Amy Carmichael. Also continue to meditate in the fruit of the spirit defined in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Also to dig deeper in our teaching today from Pastor Mark, particularly the purpose of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 15. Thank you. Awesome, thanks Gabe. Um, and and uh, as Gabe mentioned, I know many of you all were a part of the book club during the holidays um, and hopefully you were uh, just blessed through the reading of those two books. Um, so thanks Gabe for uh, sharing your takeaways and your highlights from that time. Okay, uh, next we'll go to Kim Leung from Udi's group. Hello, um, I'm Kim. Hope I'm not bugging out. But uh, I didn't get the pleasure of being at the club this time, but I, I like to share about like what I learned today in my small group. Um, it was just very encouraging to like go over the word again. It's been like a month, pretty much it feels like, but it's just very encouraging to um, just talk about like how um, in this chapter, these verses, even though it's so short, it's only like three verses that, you know, we're um, learning how to um, really be able to um, live the life that is like of what God wants us to be and it's not like it's like a, a God that isn't living or it's like a false God but it's a living God that gave us living word and that um, we are to like support and to uphold the truth just like how um, you know Christ is like the buttress and the pillar um, just like that we're supposed to be strong hold in what God is telling us and that um, um, there's not like oh there's no other doctrine um, or other teaching that we are to like be sharing with others um, and we want to really guard what what God says and not like what we take out of it but really what it's being drawn out by what God says and that you know very thankful for like our leadership that's really choosing to teach us what God is saying and not like what's going on in the world like and that we're not doing it based on like things like politics or like um like any problems, like situations that are going on and like the news and stuff, but you know, that they're really teaching us the truth and how they can encourage us and grow us in his word and that they're really following, trying to fill, um, follow what God says. Um, and that um, lastly, that um, we are called to uphold what he called, like God calls is the truth. And that, you know, I was beginning in like the first chapter one, like how we were, learning about like false doctrines and false teachers, but how like now that we are learning like that we're to be the support to share with others um, the true living word and yeah. 
Awesome. Thanks, thanks Kim. Uh, with that, I will hand it to Pastor Mark. Thank you, Gabriel and Kim. It's just, uh, it's good to see you. And uh, just, it's just encouraging to hear um, from you, just what the Lord is teaching you both. So it's very, very sweet. Um, let's see, Tim, I'm going to see if I can uh, share my screen here. So I think you, if you could make me a host and then I can show my slides. I think you should be able to share. Do you see? It's saying um, host disabled participant screen sharing. Uh, okay. Um, maybe you could try it now. We're good. Thank you, sir. Okay. All right, thank you all for your patience. Um, so, you know, I just wanna take a few minutes just to remind us of what this is all about. And I'm gonna take a, a few moments too, just to walk us through a little bit of the context of First Timothy, it's been a while. But this is our Lagos ministry, Lagos for Greek for the word. And it's taken from 1 John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And uh, the name of the ministry is really meant to set the direction of what this is about. And it's really for our church to learn how to live the word of God together, that we would do this together and we would learn how to live it. And we would learn how to do so God's way. Just we're in a world where people use God's word for countless different reasons and excuses. But, uh, you know, our conviction, our hope, and, and the reason, you know, so much time is spent, and there are many men behind this who make this happen, and I just want to thank all of them for the way in which they've labored to make this happen. It is the testimony and reality that God's word changes our lives, and God's word changes our lives, and there is power in the word of the Lord to save us and to change our lives because Jesus is the living word of God. That's the conviction. And uh, it might not be for many a Benny Hinn zap, but at the end of the day, by faith in Christ, Christ changes us. And when he does so as his children, he always, always, always changes us with his word. He never does it separate from his word. His word is his agency. The written word especially is his agency with which he transforms us. And that's why we take the time that we do. And so the hope with Logos is in your small groups, you have a chance to go through exegesis, to interpret the scripture and to carefully examine it and, and have a chance to digest it prayerfully with one another. And then as we gather together for these Logos evenings, at the end of a long day, I'm, I'm reminded when many of you are tired and our brains are tired, um, hopefully we'll be able to sort of put it together and consider really two things on these evenings. The authorial intent, what does God intend you to take away from this passage? And what does God want you to apply from this passage? Those are the big two things that we're after. Um, so just to give us a, an idea of context, one of the things that, that we walk through regularly is, as you look at the scriptures, we don't want to take God's word out of context. We don't want to abuse it. We don't want to use it as a justification for our sin. 
for our desires or a particular lifestyle. We really believe that God is our father. He loves us and he has things that are important on his heart for us to hear. And that's why he's given us the Bible, which is his love letter to us. A love letter that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and has different parts and different chapters, different sections, which he used different men under the influence of the Holy Spirit to communicate to us. It's, it's been left for us. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. So that's one of the reasons we take the time to understand God's word in context. And one of the ways that we see, just by example, is you'll see many of the prosperity gospel people um, and many people in America and many quote unquote conservative evangelicals who, uh, and many, you know, who are working through many conspiracy theories, they will take different portions of scripture and take it out of context, especially and particularly they will take promises in the Old Testament and use them for the church, promises that were specifically meant for Israel, or they'll go to the book of Revelation and take promises or warnings there and take them out of context and use it to apply to America right now, this minute, this moment, whereas the book of Revelation was meant for the church and the sweep of history when Christ comes back again. You know, we just see in countless ways where people are deceived. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to deceive us with the word of God. And that's what we've seen from the very beginning by manipulating or twisting the word of God for his own end. And that's how the serpent functions in Genesis 1 all the way through. Well, as children of the Lord, we have the opportunity to understand God's word his way. And part of that is understanding as we come to the book of Timothy to understand it in context. Where does it fit in in God's love letter to us? Where does it fit in in the redemptive story? So I'm going to throw out some questions and hopefully someone can answer. But first, Timothy, are we in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Any takers on that? New Testament. New Testament. Good job. Well done. Someone is teaching you something at Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose. All right, so we're in the New Testament. Where in the New Testament do we find 1 Timothy? Do we find it in the Gospels? The first books which count, give an account and narrative of the life of Jesus, the book of Acts, which provides us from Dr. Luke, a narrative of the account of the, the early church. Are we in the epistles, which are the letters written to the church? Or at the very end, the book of Revelation? Where do we find the book of Timothy? Epistles. The epistles. Well said. Okay. And as you look in those epistles, they're put in the epistles that are written by the Apostle Paul. And they're also collected at the very end of the Apostle Paul's epistles, the epistles specifically that are written to individuals. First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, where those letters were written to specific individuals, personal letters, but letters that were still meant to be heard by the rest of the church, okay? And so that, when we go and read this, we're gonna look at it and we have to understand, okay, this, we need to understand this as a letter that was written to an individual and not as a descriptive or a narrative or even as an Old Testament, um, let's say poem per se, okay? We wanna appreciate the literal sense how did God intend us to understand it? Well, he expects us to understand 1 Timothy as a letter that is written to someone. 
All right. Who was the original, let's, I guess, author, date? Who wrote uh, Timothy? We talked about this. Paul? Absolutely. Okay. Though you do need to know that in contemporary uh, scholarship, uh, there are many Bible scholars who are wrong and will contend that this was not written by Paul, but was written under someone who gave himself the name Paul, okay? All the books of the Bible are frequently contested uh, based on the standards of men, but clearly from early church history onward, the testimony and the testimony of what is spoken here, it's coming from the apostle Paul to his true child of the faith, uh, Timothy, and uh, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, the date, the timing. When does this take place in the history of the church? Sixty AD. Good job. Good job, Park family. Right. Seminary education is worth something. So uh, we're, but you're talking about, you know, somewhere between 60 and 65 AD, you're talking about the end of the Apostle Paul's life before he gets his head cut off. Okay. And, uh, you know, what we're talking about really, and, and Peter's mentioned this in his sermon, we're talking about the end of the apostolic era. Okay. The apostles by and large, the most of them, those who have been sent by Christ, witnessed the resurrected Lord, uh, the disciples, the 12, you know, the 11 plus the one appointed Matthias and Acts, they have by and large died with the exception of the apostle Paul, uh, John, okay, and Peter maybe at this time, okay, and, and Peter, but Peter and Paul are, are just getting at the very end of their ministry. Miracles, are becoming less and less frequent. And there's an increased dependence and availability of the written word of God. And the Apostle Paul is getting Timothy and the church ready for the rest of the church age, which is going to be the age of, uh, you know, the absence of signs and wonders. And the authority obviously is always Christ, but it's going to be through his written word. All right. And so we're right there as part of that era, this is still part of our era until Christ comes again. Um, original audience, who was the Apostle Paul writing to? Timothy in Ephesus. He was, absolutely. And so he writes this letter to Timothy, who he has sent to be the primary or senior pastor or shepherd in the church plant that Paul helped start in Ephesus. And so this letter is meant first for Timothy, but by extension, as he writes it, it, the suggestion is that this is meant for the church as a whole to read, the church leadership, the church as a whole, but also to be circulated among the churches in Asia Minor, the sister churches, so that they would all be able to glean from what Paul is writing to Timothy. So a personal letter specifically to Timothy, but by extension, the leadership of the churches and the members of the churches in Asia 
Minor. And specifically, many of the things he's talking about address problems that Timothy is facing in the church in Ephesus. And as we've mentioned before, there's a lot that is going wrong in the church of Ephesus. As the apostolic era comes to a close, and as Paul's ministry is winding down, uh, increasingly there is a power grab happening, and there is a defiance of the gospel. There is an increasing push for the ministry and the teaching and the doctrine of men, rather than the lordship and teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the worship, uh, the roles, the care in the church, the teaching in the church, just about every aspect of the church is coming under assault to squeeze out the lordship of Christ, to squeeze out the gospel, to make this about us rather than Jesus. And it's showing up everywhere. And the full court press is coming against both the Apostle Paul, but especially Timothy, because Timothy is representing the gospel and standing for the Apostle Paul. Sorry, let's see if I can go back. Okay. The purpose of, of Paul's letter. Does anybody remember what the purpose of Paul's letter is? When we go through these, you know, my encouragement to you as you go through, sometimes you get ready for your small groups, is to take the time to read and reread, but at least to read through 1 Timothy once from beginning to end like it was meant to be read. And in fact, in, in, in the early church, many times they would gather together for a church service or an assembly and read these letters out loud. Read them from beginning to end, because that's the way they were meant to be read, from beginning to end, so that you can see the the forest and not just the trees. And I wanna push you a little bit to whenever you look at what is the purpose of a specific book or a letter to look for the words themselves. What do the verses say? What does the author actually say? And does he express the intent? And if we look at uh, 1 Timothy 1.3 and the passage we're dealing with today, 3, 14 through 15, and then the end, the beginning, the middle, and the end, Paul sort of repeatedly revisits the theme of why he's writing this letter to Timothy. And, you know, we can simplify it maybe a little bit and sum it up where Paul is calling Timothy to guard the gospel and guard the lordship of Jesus Christ in the local church. And he's calling Timothy to fight for it. And everything that he rolls out from beginning to end, he's giving Timothy a battle plan about how to contend and protect and uphold the good news of Jesus Christ in the local church, as opposed to the good news, which is not really good news, of men, right? And, and maybe, you know, I was watching, um, you know, some of the inauguration this week. We saw the capital invasion a few weeks ago. One of the points that has been brought up repeatedly in the news and by politicians is we need to fight for democracy. They're making this point that democracy needs to be protected. The constitution needs to be protected. This is what America is about. And they roll out what America is about and how the need to contend for that and that everything that happened in the capital invasion and insurgency is a complete contradiction of what people say they stand for. We're here to save America. Well, it's the opposite of that. Well, 
on a greater and more important level. Paul is pointing out to Timothy that what the church is about, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about Christ saving his lost sheep. And it's about the work of God putting together a people of God, a bride of Christ. And the center of that, what it's all about is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and his good news. And when that gets removed, when we lose sight of that, we stop being the church, we stop being who God has called us to be, and we become something else, and essentially we die. And so Paul is giving Timothy every reason in this epistle to contend for the gospel. And quite frankly, it's the same battle that we fight today. It's the same battle that churches fight for today, and it's the same reason why churches live and you know, are on fire for the Lord and lives get saved. And it's also the reason why churches die as well. Okay. So this gives us an idea of the big picture of what this uh, text is all about. And then we come into the middle, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. We're right in the middle of Paul's letter and Paul's argument per se about how we contend or how Timothy is to contend for the sake of the gospel and the lordship of Christ in the local church. And so far we've walked through, and this is just a summary from last semester. The apostle points out chapter one, our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, he cares about the leadership and teaching of his church. It's not up for grabs. Our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ has very, very clear commands about who should be leading in his church, who should be teaching in his church, and what should be taught in his church. And any deviation from Christ's clear instruction in his word of who leads and teaches and what is taught is a deviation from the church of Jesus Christ. And it's a deviation from the gospel and it's a deviation from the lordship of Christ. And it's going in a direction that leads to destruction. That's chapter one. And when we get to first Timothy chapter two, Paul makes the point that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ cares about the worship and service of his church. And so prayer is to be a priority in the church. And prayer that men in leadership are saved because God's desire is that all men would be saved. And Jesus cares about how we go about worship and service in the church. And part of that includes our roles. And Paul makes that point in 1 Timothy 2 that the men are to lead in prayer. That is how we are to be distinguished, not by bearing arms, not by protesting, not by, you know, our careers, not by making a splash in the local community. Men are to lead in prayer, lifting up holy hands. And part of that is we're to lead in holiness. And the ladies of the church are to be servant helpers. They're to be present. They're to come alongside but they are not to lead and teach or usurp that role because God created men and women to serve him together with the men as the servant leaders and the women as the servant helpers. And first Timothy two, Paul outlines what is being attacked in the local church as they succumb to the ways of the world. But he also upholds, look, this is God's blueprint for how worship and life is to take place. Then when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, he comes into church leadership. Very specifically, he talks about the character, for the most part, 
of church leaders. Church leaders are to be above reproach. And he walks through a list of qualifications, which are essentially, you know, the character of Christ. That's ultimately what it is. That church leaders, Christ cares about the character of his church leaders. And the character of church leaders is to exemplify the good news of Jesus Christ. That Christ has come in them and he's transformed them. That they're no longer like the world. They're not worried about taking bribes. They don't double speak. They manage their households well. All of these different aspects are character traits of lives that are transformed and have been reordered right side up by the Lordship of Christ. Christ is their Lord, and you can see it in their homes and their lives and their characters. And uh, then we come to right after that section, our section for this evening, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, which is about the conduct and confession of the members of the local church. And that's, that's you and I, our conduct and our confession, what we say and what we do. And, you know, the big picture take home from this passage is Jesus cares about what we say and do. And Jesus cares about what we say and do, not just when we show up to church on Sunday, as we'll see, the idea is that we are part of the household of God. We are God's children. Okay. And, uh, the idea of the household of God is not just a building or a structure, it's the family, okay? So when, you know, in our family, thank God my, my boys are asleep now, so they won't get upset. Do I just worry about how our children behave when nobody's watching? No, I'm concerned about how our boys behave at all times. Whether you're around, whether we're at church or at Sunday, or whether nobody's watching, because they're my boys. I love them. And my desire is that they would walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, and they would walk in the joy of the Lord. Okay? And so there's that care, because they're part of my household. They're my children. What they say and do, in fact, many times, even what they might mumble under their breath, or what they might say silently, or what they may think, those things are of a concern to me. What they believe, that's very much a concern to me, okay? And so globally, we are children of the Most High God. Jesus died so that we could be adopted into his family. Our Father loves us, and he cares about the convictions of our heart. What we say and do is really a reflection of what's going on inside, and the Lord sees both of them, and it's a burden and concern for him about what we say and what we do. He cares about those things. And he is also, as we're going to find out hopefully this evening, that he's provided for a way that what we say and what we do can be transformed and be a great witness of his love for us. That, I believe, is what 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 16 is all about. So let's come to 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Okay. When we look at this passage, and obviously 1 Timothy 3.14, it comes after 1 Timothy 3.13. 1 Timothy 3.13, the apostle Paul talks about deacons, and he says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And after he says that, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you 
so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Okay. In, in this passage, our passage, and a little bit from what came before about deacons, the Apostle Paul is drawing some connections. He's connecting character. That's the character of the leaders, okay? But he's connecting character. What is our character? He's connecting conduct, how we ought to behave. And then he goes on and connects it with the confession or the gospel. He draws this link and he's showing Timothy, there's a connection between how we serve in church. There's a connection between our character. There's a connection between our conduct. And there's a connection between what we believe. We will live out and we will speak and do what we believe. That will always be the case. Okay. If you believe that a vaccine is going to save you from COVID-19, you're going to make every effort to go and get that vaccine. If you believe a stock is going to increase significantly and it's going to fill your bank with an incredible amount of money, you are going to go and you're going to act on that. You're going to invest in that stock. If you believe that there is someone in our church who you need to spend time with or they need your care, you're going to go and spend time with them. We do and we say what we do and we say is an overflow of our heart. And it's an expression of what's there. It's an expression of our conviction and our confession. And then Paul ties it together with what the church is. Our convictions, our confession should be a reflection of who we are, that we're children of the most high God and we're part of his household. They should be a reflection of who our Lord is. And so it works both ways. Our conduct and our character is a reflection of who's most important in our life. But it works in a very positive sense, too. If Christ is the most important person in our lives, our lives are going to radically change because he's going to change our lives with his spirit and his word. It's going to happen organically. It's going to happen naturally. That transformation is going to happen. There's a couple of observations I want you to consider as we, we, we look at this text. The Apostle Paul talks about He's writing these things, and what he's just written about is about leadership in the local church, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. And the thing I want to draw your attention to is the language that the Apostle Paul uses here. He uses a verb in Greek. It's dei, D-E-I. It means it is necessary, and it's a Greek word that Luke uses frequently to show divine necessity, divine necessity. In other words, it's a language which says, this must happen. This is God's will, okay? And one of the points that the Apostle Paul, I believe, is making to Timothy is there is a standard and a direction of behavior that is necessary for a child of God. It's obligatory. You ought to do this. You might not do it, but you're supposed to. There is a standard. It's not up for grabs, our conduct, okay? Why, okay? And, and when he talks about conduct, the word he uses for conduct is about the entire direction of your life, okay? 
your behavior, the entire direction, what does every word, every action, every deed, what does it sum up to? What does it point to at the end of the day? If we were to take, if we were to take everything we did and everything that we said and we put it in a picture, what would that picture look like as we stood back at a distance? What would it all come together as a mosaic and resemble? Well, it's supposed to resemble Jesus. That's the direction we're going. We might not be there yet, but that's what the gospel does in our lives. And that's what the gospel did in the Apostle Paul's life. It turned it around. It took someone who was the opposite of what Jesus looked like, filled with bitterness and hate and resentment and a life that was built on academic achievement and religious service into a man who threw all of that away and became nothing and showed incredible love for people who previously he had reviled. And you look at that, what was the reason for the Apostle Paul? Well, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus became his Lord. He encountered the risen Lord. His life was never the same. The Spirit of God came in. The gospel saved him. And as a result, his conduct, his behavior, the direction of his life, his words and deeds, the decisions he made, his career, what he did, who he spent time with, all of that was radically transformed. And that's what he's talking about, the summation of our life, which is made up of every action and word and deed that we do. It creates a line and a story and a testimony. Well, he makes a connection in verse 15a, okay, of how we ought to behave with what the church is. Because the church is what Christ has made us. And he makes the point in verse 15b, as he goes into that section, he talks about the ecclesia of the living God, that God has assembled an assembly of children, that the church is the household or the house of the living God, that this is the dwelling place. This is where God dwells, that in fact, when God gathers his children together, he is there in the midst of them. His spirit is present. The spirit of Christ is present. Christ is literally present. He might not be physically present, but he is indeed present. I was listening to a podcast this week from Nine Marks about why we struggle to pray. And one of the points that they made on that podcast is we struggle to pray because we struggle to believe that Christ is truly present in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces. We struggle with prayer, as they pointed out, because of pride. Because the person we believe in most is ourselves, our words, our deeds, what we accomplish. So we spend an awful lot more time investing and thinking about what we are going to do rather than what God has promised to do in our lives. Now, we all struggle with that, but that's why Jesus came to save us. And that's why he's poured his spirit into us. And that's why he's given us his word. And that's why he's collected us together as a church. So at times when we're weak and others are strong, they can encourage us and point us to Christ and stir up the spirit within us. The church, when we gather together, especially at times like this, but even more so face-to-face -face on Sundays, as we gather together, Christ is present in our midst. And it's because of this, our conduct, what we say and do, it matters, and it matters to Jesus. He's present, and he witnesses. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on and describes the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. 
he's pointing out here what we do and how we behave is really directed and informed by the church, what the church is. If you're in a household, there's a particular way you need to behave. If you've ever gone into, uh, let's say, to visit the White House, for example, right? That's what's on the air at this time. If you ever go into the White House, there's a certain protocol, even if you walk through. There's a certain expectation as far as what times you can get access to it. If you were ever invited to the White House, there will be a protocol as far as how you were to behave and how you were to conduct yourself. And if you conducted yourself in a way that was contrary to that protocol, you would be removed or perhaps even arrested. That's what we saw happening on January 6th, right? Well, the Apostle Paul is making the point, you belong to the household of God. And that sets the standard of how you behave. You need to always behave with the reality that you are in the presence of the living God. And that in many ways should be freeing to our conduct and behavior. That should transform us. It should fill us with privilege and honor, but also love, all right? For most of us, most of us, I'm saying, if we were to walk into the White House, we would tighten up a little bit. We'd consider, you know, how our hair looks, how we dressed. If the president came by or the president-elect came by, we would be a little bit concerned, you know, to the same degree, we are in the presence of a very important person, the most important person in the universe. And in fact, when you go through scripture, what really served as a power and protection from sin was that men of God and women of God understood that even if no one was looking, they were in the presence of God. And this is what we see with Joseph when he is in prison. Joseph, when he is put in prison, he's put in prison because he will not sleep with Potiphar's wife. No one is looking, no one is around, but Joseph in his heart knows that God is present. God is his Lord, and he knows he cannot do this wickedness against the Lord and against Potiphar. And we, by extension, look at the power for us when we struggle or men struggle with pornography or lustful looks, or women struggle with, let's say it's covetousness, or whatever it is that captures their eyes and their heart's desires. Well, Paul is coming and saying, the conduct of your thought life, what you do, how you serve on Sundays, it should all be informed by our understanding that the church, the ecclesia, is the place where God dwells. That has always been the case. The church or the temple is the place where God makes his love, but also his holiness manifest. And then he goes on and describes the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. The pillar and the buttress of the truth. Well, what does that mean? We talk about it supporting the truth. Um, if someone could, would you look up 1 Kings 721 and would you read it for us? He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Joaquin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. Okay, Udi, thank you so much. Okay, that is taken from Solomon's temple. And there's a huge section in 1 Kings 7 that's devoted to 
uh, a description of Solomon erecting these massive pillars and decorating them all out, gold, carvings, all of these different things and putting names on them. Uh, I believe that Paul, many times when he talked about the household of God, had the idea of the fulfillment of what the temple was pointing to. The temple was the dwelling place of the living God. And this idea of a pillar, many times we think of pillars as being supports. It, it's what props up the roof, okay? But in Solomon's temple, these two pillars were there as a demonstration or visible display for a reason and for a message. And those names that were put on those two pillars, Boaz, you know, and we think of David's, you know, grandfather or great-grandfather, okay, and, and Jacob, both of those names were testimonies to God fulfilling his promise of redemption to his people. The pillars were meant to be a visible display of God's truth and grace for his people. And we go back even further to the tent of meeting where a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire demonstrated that God was present and he had condescended to dwell with his people and provide a way, even though they were sinful, that they could have fellowship and draw near to him through the sacrificial system and the law of Moses. They are expressions of the love of God. They are testimonies to his salvation. And so when we tie that together and see that of what the church is, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the apostle Paul goes directly into a testimony of the gospel where he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Mystery in scripture refers to what God has hidden for a period of time, but has now revealed. And the mystery of God, godliness, Paul says, it's great. It's not small. It's not minuscule. It's humongous. It's enormous. It's earth shattering. And he's making reference to the gospel. And he goes in verse 16. And if you notice the verbs in verse 16, they're all passive verbs for the most part. He's talking about what God has done in Christ, through the life of Christ, God's work in Christ, by extension, God's work in us, according to his word, how Christ came and drew near, that's God's work, how he came in the flesh, that he was vindicated by the spirit, probably a reference to the resurrection and God raising him from the dead, and Paul in Ephesians will say, this is the same power that is at work in you, and then they talk about the angels and then they talk about it the message going out and him believed throughout all the earth he's basically summing up the entire gospel plan and redemptive history in this small phrase and it all comes together in our lord and savior jesus christ and paul's pointing out this is what has made the church what it is when you look at the epistle to the ephesians as in some ways a complementary book to first timothy what we see is, well, who's put the church together? It's because Christ has come in the flesh. It's because he's risen from the dead. It's because the same power in the resurrection is in, at, in power in you, is at work in you. This is what the hope is of the church, that we don't need to walk around and go around as defeated people who are discouraged and depressed because of all the terrible things that are happening in America and COVID-19. Yes, that is the world. 
but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That this mystery of godliness demonstrates that God is indeed present in his people and in his church. He has drawn near to us and he's made a way for us to be his children. Okay, so those are the bits and pieces. What's the authorial intent? It comes back to this statement, Christ cares about our conduct and our service in his church. That our conduct and character is meant to be a reflection of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our conduct, our behavior, our service is always going to be an overflow of our heart. And if Christ is our Lord and the gospel has come in and transformed us and saved us, it is going to show in what we do, in what we say, and how we serve in the local church. It's going to change our character over time. And yeah, we're going to drop the ball. There's going to be mistakes. We're not going to be perfect. But over time, the good news of the gospel is the power of salvation for all men. That idea of salvation for all men who believe, it's not just it gets us into the kingdom. It's the idea that it is the power that is going to sanctify us and transform us into the image of Christ. So that when God comes, he's going to say to us, well done, my good and faithful servants. It's the reason that gives us joy in serving Christ, even when things are difficult, even when things are falling apart, because you know what? Christ is present. It's why the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's why he says the love of Christ compels or controls us. Why do we do what we do? because our lives have been changed by the gospel, because of what the church is, because of the greatness of the gospel. We are part of the dwelling place of the living God. We are on fire for the Lord, and it shows to the rest of the world that God has come. And, you know, in our better moments, brothers and sisters, when people come into the church and they see something different, and they palpably draw near to the blessing of the gospel, what they're drawing near to is the reality that Christ indeed has come. He has risen from the grave. He has gone out to all the nations, his message. He has been believed upon, and he is present when we gather together, especially when we gather together at the Lord's table or at a baptism. Authorial intent. I believe God wants us to walk away from this passage with the conviction that as sinners saved by grace, if that is indeed what we are, as children of the Lord, those who have been adopted out of the world and are his, our character and our conduct and our service are to defend, uphold, and display the truth of the gospel and the lordship of Christ. Everything we do and say should be a demonstration that Christ is present in our lives. Now, do we fulfill that? No. Okay. Do we fall short? Frequently, yes. But I would also say for many, you'd be surprised at how often, even if you're not aware, or even if you're having a hard day, how much the Lord shines through. Because ultimately, the church or the ecclesia is God's work and his dwelling place in Christ. It's not based on our merit or our work. It's not by a special program or plan. 
It's those moments that we might be unaware of or not, let's say, thinking, but it's just coming organic and naturally in the same way a child will grow. And when a child sees its parent, it will run to that parent. When a child is hurt, where will it go? It'll run to that parent. Those are the moments when we see who that child really is and who loves that child. And so brothers and sisters, sometimes it's in our weakest moments as a church or as individuals that God's grace and his strength is most visibly demonstrated to the world. And it's certainly one of the reasons why God brings trials and tribulations into the lives of his children. Why does it happen? And yet as Paul shows in 2 Corinthians 12, seven through 11, those are specifically and expressly the moments when the presence of Christ sometimes is most visibly on display. Okay, and that brings us to the very end. The church is the gospel made visible. Of course, I've stolen that countless times from Mark Dever, but I believe he's absolutely right. And I believe that this is what this passage is telling us and how it connects us with our conduct and our service. The church, each one of us, our lives, in the workplace, in the home, what our children see, what people don't in the world see, behind closed doors, all of those things in their entirety are the gospel made visible. And brothers and sisters, if we're children of the Lord, this should give us hope. Because at the end of the day, the gospel is God's work in us, not us trying to save ourselves. What's our application? Okay. I do think it's helpful from time to time, and, and those of you who are married or even in our small groups, to really consider our character, our conduct, and our service. Uh, and to say, okay, how do I struggle in these areas? What does it say about my relationship with Jesus? Let me make it even more simple. Just have a look at your posts on Facebook or Instagram or social media. Go through, review them or your texts. And just say, what do these show about my relationship with Jesus? What do they say about what is most important in my life? Okay. And that's something I just want to continually encourage you to consider to use it not to slap you on the wrist, but more to say, okay, this is sort of a weather vane. It's a flag. It lets us know what's going on in your heart, okay? I, I will come out and say to you as, as the pastor of the church, I get comments from other pastors. Who's this person? Who's this person? Why do they post all this? Or why do they post that? Now, typically people don't ask me about all the people who are posting great things, and many of you are posting really great and wonderful things that are an encouragement. You know, the outliers are the things that make people say, whoa, okay? But I say that because this has been a time and era where many Christians have been engaging in the forum of social media. It's been a place where a lot of what's on our heart plays out in front of many people. But I, I will say it reflects on our church. And there are folks who come and speak to me and say, hey, what's up here? What's up there? Well, I want to come to you and say what's most important is what's going on up here. What's your relationship with Christ? And what does our conduct say about our relationship with Christ? 
Let me extend that to say our service in the local church, how we love one another and how we love the Lord, how we give of ourselves. What does that say about the gospel? Julie and I were having a conversation recently. We were going through the gospel of Luke and, and the Sermon on the Mount, so to speak, Luke's version of that, of that where, where Jesus tells his disciples that they're really to give of themselves and expect nothing in return. That even sinners go and they loan money with the expectation that they'll get that money back. But the disciples are to give and they're to give expecting nothing in return. And the point I believe that Jesus is making there is their lives are to respect the love of God. That they give selflessly with no expectation because that's what Jesus is doing with the disciples. And so we want to consider our service in the church, not to say, I need to serve more. And this is not a lecture to you to say, you need to serve more. It's more, what is the heart with which you serve? And as you struggle, and at different times, we all do struggle. We can be discouraged. It's been hard. It's been difficult. I don't feel like serving. I don't feel like praying. Those should be some indication for us or a measure about Christ's presence in our lives. What is most present in your life? Is it Christ and his word or is it other things? If it's other things, your life is going to be marked by discontent and struggle with praying and serving and loving others because your life is all going to be about taking, taking, taking. That's the love of the world. When Christ is dwelling in our church and in our hearts, we're going to want to give and give and give and give and give because that's what Christ did for us on the cross. And therein lies the power to transform and change us. And so where am I going with this? It's really the question of who is Lord of our lives? Who is Lord of our conduct? Who is Lord of our service? Paul in 1 Timothy is making the pitch to Timothy. Jesus in the gospel, Jesus needs to be Lord of the church and the gospel needs to be what the church is all about. And when that's the case, people grow, Christ's love is present, and the gospel goes out. You remove that, it church becomes about us, and it becomes an ugly, ugly, ugly place. And so I believe the application ultimately is for us to draw near to Jesus by faith, to accept the reality that he is present in our lives if we are saved, to rejoice in that, to delight in that, to come to Christ through repentance and prayer, and to obey his word. I believe what the Apostle Paul is rolling out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy is, when we walk with Christ, the church is what it is supposed to be. It is a beautiful thing and a demonstration of his incredible love for us. And the gospel goes out and lost sheep are saved. And that's why we're here. So I hope this has been an encouragement and a challenge to you. Um, I know uh, Peter actually had a few words about service. And so I'm going to hand it off to him at this point in time. And then uh, after that, I believe Teddy is going to close us in prayer. I don't know. Hey, guys, can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Um, well, hello, everybody. Uh, Mark uh, said after his teaching, he wanted me to do one of those one hour and 10 minute long sermons that I do. And uh, I thought you guys would be all prepped up now. So no, I'm just teasing guys. 
Um, no, this is just a, a um, it's a small little break. I wanted to just uh, mention something that I think is important to, to talk about, um, especially when all of us are in, in a one room together. And, uh, and I would say Zoom is kind of like a virtual room. So we're all kind of in one room together. Um, I want to talk about service for a second. Um, all of you uh, are part of the body of Christ. And you guys understand that being part of the body of Christ means to, to be a member, uh, to be baptized into the church and to, and to serve in the church. Um, I want us to turn to Romans 12. And uh, I promise this won't be a full sermon. I'll try to keep it actually as brief as possible. But I do want us to actually read a passage, um, really just to prove that these are, these are not my own ideas. And, um, and I'm going to read for you Romans 12, verses 3 to 8. Romans 12, verses 3 to 8. So follow along in the reading of God's word. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, the one who leads, with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The Holy Spirit dispenses gifts within the church, and it, that gift is manifested as you take part in, as a member in the body of Christ. It doesn't come with fanfare. It doesn't come miraculously. It comes through observations desire and time and patience and where you believe you can contribute to the church essentially now that doesn't sound like a gift but believe it or not not everybody can contribute to the church in the same way now um this is the main passage but you know it's actually you know i don't know about you guys i love sandwiches um if you ask me what my favorite sandwich is it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because uh, it's simple to make and delicious. And I usually eat two of them. I never eat one. I know it's childish, but it's just true. But this is probably also one of my favorite sandwiches in the Bible because this passage right here is sandwiched between verses one to two and then verses nine to 21, which I won't read all of it for the sake of time. But it's important to consider that as members, you guys are all commanded to serve the Lord, 
with the capacity that you're able to in the manner that God has gifted you and within your capabilities and opportunities. That is something that you agreed to as a uh, member of the church, all right? Now, where am I going at this? First of all, if you're not serving, uh, you are not really part of the body of Christ yet. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, but, you know, if I, I can come to you and say all I want that I'm, we have a neighbor down the street and I'm part of his family, but it's all words, unless I'm actually interacting with the family and living with them and, you know, they consider me one of their own. You know, we have to get beyond just saying that you're part of the church. So that's the first reminder. But there's a couple of things I want to say to all of you who are serving. Because all of you are serving in many ways, behind the curtains and sometimes right in up front where a lot of people are seeing you. Some of you are gifted financially in numbers. Some of you are gifted with music. Some of you are gifted with engineering and you're fixing problems. Some of you guys have the muscles. You guys are carrying heavy things around. And then some of you are gifted in prayer. Um, it doesn't matter how you're serving the Lord because the Lord knows exactly how you, you, he's using the gifts that he's given to you. But this passage is a sandwich because the verse that I read, verses 3 to 8, is sandwiched between verses 1 to 2, which is really about holiness. It's about holiness. That before we he talks about service, he's talking about presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. And that is your spiritual worship. After the passage, he's talking about marks of a true Christian. And that marks of a true Christian is based on the fruit in your life. So these are things that you will notice. Um, he's talking about, you know, let your love be genuine. You know, love each other with brotherly affection. Um, do not be slothful in zeal. Rejoice, be patient in tribulation, show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. This is all fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, why am I mentioning this? It's not just to try to get you guys to serve harder, because I think a lot of you are serving really hard. Um, it's really to, to get you to consider that there's a very real possibility that you could be serving really hard like an unbeliever. And that's Paul's point here. It is the concept of what we would call kind of like a practical atheist, you know, and service is part of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that happens in the church. But without holiness before it, and then the fruit after, you really have to look really hard what type of service you're giving to the, to the Lord. And that's kind of what I want to just remind you all. And if you are a small group leader, a discipler in any capacity in Lagos or in the church, which I think is Lagos, you know, if you are in that capacity as a shepherd, then you have to remember how are they serving in the church? Um, if you're shepherding someone with sin, you have to consider whether they need to continue to serve or, or pause or step down for a moment temporarily, and in the worst case scenario, be disqualified. And I'm not saying this 
to scare you guys or to be mean. I'm telling you this because the elder's job isn't only to protect the teaching in the church. The elder's job is also to protect the worship in the church. And that means that you have to realize that service is a privilege and not a right in the church. And it's funny because when you shepherd somebody and tell them that sin is bad, sin is wicked, sin is evil, they nod their head, and some, some will still go on to sin. But if you tell them, if you keep doing that, you can't serve in this capacity ever again in the church, all of a sudden they get offended. Some people get hurt. Some people get disappointed. And the problem is, is the pride that people think that service is a right in the church, and it's not. And this is why we should all be thankful if the Lord is allowing you to serve in his church. In his church, not my church, in his church, not Mark's church, in his church, right? Not Ted's church. Do you guys take for granted your ability to serve in the church? Do you take for granted your ability to even show up at a prayer meeting or even to be part of a small group? Is your life filled with holiness before you serve? And is your life filled with fruit after? That's the sandwich of Romans 12 the whole chapter, the middle parts about being gifted in service and actually, actually using those gifts. But the gifts won't mean anything if, it, if you're not presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then your service won't mean anything if you don't have a mark of a true Christian in your life. Don't overvalue service in your life. The service itself is actually a fruit of the gospel. Don't be so proud of some of the things you're doing in your life because anything you do is really a fruit of the Holy Spirit, okay? So this is why I just wanted to bring this up because there have been some shepherding issues that have been coming up recently and some people who have continued on service but have confessed later and they're realizing that the shepherding hasn't been completed yet. And so I wanted to just gently remind you, the church, that don't take service for granted. Paul even said to fight the good fight, to live out of faith, godliness. He did that. He strove to honor the Lord so he wouldn't get disqualified because he knew that there was a possibility that your usefulness in the kingdom could be taken away, at least in this lifetime. It doesn't mean necessarily you won't go to heaven. It doesn't mean necessarily you won't um, join the choir in heaven in praise of the Lord. But it might mean you won't be able to get to do your favorite thing here on earth. And that's just something worth considering, not just for you guys, but for myself too. Without holiness, service was never worship. And without the fruit of godliness, your service remains selfish. Because that means there wasn't something greater 
a greater purpose of that service. And the whole point of service is what? Selflessness. Selflessness. That's what it means to be a servant. It's not about getting what you want. It's not even being driven by your own joy of the service itself, because even that can be selfish. And so I know many of you are serving in the church. I know many of you love to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he's given you. I praise God for that because, trust me, our church would be an extremely boring church to be at if you guys weren't serving. Because literally, it would just be a sermon, and that's it. But we have so many other things going on. And that makes the church exciting to be at. And the body of Christ is dynamic, and it's meant to be. So small group leaders and disciples, this is me reminding you that find out how your small group members are serving. You should know what ministries they're part of. Some of these guys are part of like four or five ministries. They're, they're very passionate about serving. And just be mindful, you know, to speak to those ministry leaders if there are sin issues that come up so that we can properly shepherd people through them. Because how we handle sin in the church is the measuring stick of how the church is doing. It ultimately is. In Matthew 18, when you do church discipline, there's a verse that says, where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. That's in the context of discipline. Two or three are the two or three witnesses that are gathering together, basically praying through discipline issues. And if that stops in the church, literally Christ is saying his presence is also stopped in the church as well. He's among those that shepherd people. He's among those that address sin. And we need to address sin in a way that's not lighthearted, not lightly, but of course, not harshly either, but rightly. And that comes from the scriptures. All right. So with that said, I do encourage you guys to read the rest of Romans 12. I didn't read all of it for the sake of time. It is a wonderful sandwich. And uh, if you haven't had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a while, I really think you should have one this week. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Th thanks, Peter. And thanks, Pastor Mark. Uh, I think uh, a lot of challenging um, uh, just thoughts for us to consider from the word, both in First Timothy and from the book of Romans. Um, yeah, let's, um, I'll, I'll uh, share a couple of announcements uh, and I'll, I'll wrap our, our time together. Um, if this is your first time coming to Lagos, uh, we welcome you. Thank you for joining us. Um, if you are interested in finding out more about the church, have any questions, um, or specifically about any of the um, content that was shared today um, about the gospel of Christ and who he is uh, and who it is that we worship together, we encourage you to reach out to uh, Teddy Yu um, and, and Naomi Yu. Uh, Teddy, maybe you can drop in your email uh, just as a point of contact. Um, Sunday uh, uh, worship is um, uh, the highlight of our of our church uh, in our weeks, um, and we come together to uh, um, hear the word preached. 
Um, we have um, virtual streaming available, much like this, uh, but we are also uh, meeting both indoor and outdoor uh, at the campus in Sunnyvale. Um, so if you're interested in coming out, uh, we have RSVP um, available through Facebook. Um, you can uh, check on our Facebook page or reach out to your discipleship group leader to find out more detail there. Uh, and then finally for Lagos, uh, we will reconvene in two weeks um, for this large group forum. Um, next week is a off week for most folks. Uh, discipleship uh, group leaders will meet with the elders. Um, so mark your calendars for Thursday, February 4th. That's when we'll all come back together in this large group. Okay, um, let me go ahead and close our time in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for Christ. We thank you um, that uh, you um, have given us um, uh, just life through him. Um, that as the church, uh, we are adopted as your children into your household, um, that we have the privilege of being in your presence, uh, of worshiping you, um, and that um, we share a common confession in the gospel of Christ, that it was he who lived the life uh, that we could not um, and, and paid the penalty for our sin and was raised again. Um, I just pray, Father, um, that uh, amidst all the divisiveness uh, that um, surrounds us um, and um, just all the things that compete for our attention, um, all the uh, um, would-be idols um, that vie for our hearts, uh, that we would cling to Christ um, and Christ would be preeminent uh, in our church uh, and each of our lives and would be what what would be what um, uh, our identities are tied to. Uh, we just pray for um, the believers that are here, um, that we would uh, be a testimony for Christ wherever we may go. We pray for those that um, have joined us, that have yet to um, uh, confess Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, that you would continue to work in their hearts um, to uh, be receptive and open to the truth of your gospel. Uh, we thank you for the word that was preached tonight, and we lift all these things up in your name. Amen.